Hello and welcome once again to the Many Rules of Film Club. This is Jeff Yance. I am the program director at the Loft Cinema and joined as always by my favorite cinematic cohorts, occasional filmmaker Heather Lares. Hi, Jeff. And multimedia artist Rusty Boulay Stevenson. Why a big suit? <laughs> Why a big suit, indeed. Well, we're going to find out. Yeah. I think. Because today we are looking at the films of Jonathan Demme, the great recently deceased filmmaker who passed away in April. Uh, and we thought it was a good opportunity to tribute him. Uh, I think Jonathan Demme is often not looked at as an auteur because he's made so many different kinds of movies. But I would argue that he is an auteur and there's a thread running through all of his films and we're gonna maybe pull that thread out and see what unravels. So uh, just briefly, uh, Jonathan Demme, uh, of course, Oscar winner for Best Director for Silence of the Lambs, uh, has had a lot of different phases in his career that all sort of dovetail together. He started out like many great filmmakers in the 70s and 80s did uh, in the Roger Corman School of Exploitation Filmmaking, making one of my very favorite women in prison <laughs> films, Caged Heat. Uh, and also another film, which has one of the mm. greatest titles, The Hot Box. <laughs> <laughs> mm. which that is, means the smoke real fast. That's right, which is... <laughs> Yeah, The Hot Box is a women in prison <laughs> film. It's kind of what you think it is and kind of not what you think it is. And I would recommend checking them out. Also, Fighting Mad with Peter Fonda. He did a number of Corman films. Mm -hmm. uh, and then he graduated to uh, independent filmmaking in the era before Sundance independent filmmaking. So he did films like Citizens Band, which we've discussed before here at Many Rules of Film Club. Um, Melvin and Howard, which was nominated for a couple of Oscars. Uh, swing Shift. Swing Shift, Something Wild, Married to the Mob, etc. Also, throughout his career, he's returned again and again to documentary filmmaking, particularly music documentaries, but also non-musical documentaries like Swimming to Cambodia, the Spalding Gray film, uh, and Music Docs, of course, Stop Making Sense, one of the best music documentaries ever. Several Neil Young documentaries. And then he's also done a big prestige studio films like Philadelphia and uh, Silence of the Lambs, Manchurian Candidate Remake, uh, Truth About Charlie mm -hmm. with Mark Wahlberg, Beloved. So he's had a very interesting career, but you can see his stamp on all of them, even though they're all very, very different films. So I thought maybe we would just talk a little bit about some of the phases of his career and films we like in particular and see if we can figure out what what is the style of Jonathan Demme? And how do they all relate to one another? Maybe we should start with the earliest, which would be, I guess, the quirky comedies. We probably don't need to talk about the hot box. <laughs> we can <laughs> talk about that. We can talk about that later. Yeah. Uh, but in the realm of quirky comedies, for me, my favorite quirky Jonathan Demme comedy is Something Wild uh, from 1986. Really great. Uh, starring Melanie Griffith, Jeff Daniels, and Ray Liotta in his first major film role. This is a great uh, road movie screwball comedy meets psycho thriller, film noir, <laughs> violent road movie nightmare. <laughs> uh, it's kind of everything, which is what I loved about when I first saw this film. This film was very formative for me as a film lover when I saw it. Uh, I must have seen it when it came out when I was very young. But 
the film takes a very, very dramatic tonal shift halfway through the film. It becomes it starts out as sort of a kind of a romantic comedy from the 80s kind of funky road movie manic pixie manic pixie chick film uh melanie griffith plays lulu who is this wild girl she's something wild or you think that she's what the title's referring to at the beginning of the film uh she's wearing a black bob hairstyle which is modeled after louise brooks the silent film actress who played a character named lulu in pandora's box oh yeah, so there's a lot of film referencing going on, but she's dressed like uh, Louise Brooks, who was known as a wild woman in Hollywood, big time. And she, uh, Melanie Griffith ends up picking up Jeff Daniels at a restaurant one afternoon. Uh, he plays sort of an, kind of a straight-laced uh, investment banker. And she just basically turns his life upside down. She convinces him to go away with her on a weekend, this crazy weekend for him to like leave his job behind. At this point, you think, well, this is the typical, this is the plot setup of Who's That Girl with Madonna yes. and Griffin Dunn. We've yes, seen it. Agreed. Uh, it's like bad girl meets straight guy, and she ruins his life. <laughs> Women are so bad. <laughs> Women are so bad. But it's but it's really kind of lighthearted and fun. It starts out, it's like a screwball comedy. Uh, she's kind of wacky, but there are hints that she's got a dark past. She drinks a lot. She makes references to something unhappy in her past. But we don't really know what that is. Uh, she ends up getting uh, Jeff Daniels to pretend to be her husband so she can visit her mother, so she um, will be respectable. Look, I've got a husband. Mm. When really what she's doing is taking Jeff Daniels back to her high school reunion in the small town so she can show him off. Unbeknownst to him. Oh, he doesn't know anything that's happening. He's just like along for the ride, which is great. But there are hints that Jeff Daniels is someone with a dark side as well. At the beginning of the film, he runs out of the restaurant without paying the bill. Yeah. And she spots it and she says, I know you didn't pay that bill because you're wild inside. And he admits that sometimes he likes to eat lunch without paying the bill or stealing a candy bar That's from a convenience store. Right. Well, he puts the, she puts the handcuffs on him without much argument. Mm. Correct. Right? I mean, when she yes. puts the handcuffs on him, like I was thinking to myself... I wouldn't let somebody I barely know right. like that no. put handcuffs on me. That's what I immediately was thinking as I no. was watching and, it. Gotcha. And he gets into a car with someone who's drinking heavily from a flask. She's drinking scotch out of a flask. Yeah. Gotcha. Uh, and at this point, you think he's married with children, although there's a secret that's revealed later. So you think, well, maybe he's not that good of a guy, really. Maybe he's got a dark side. But then about halfway through the film, uh, she sort of embroils him in this scheme at this uh, high school reunion where she changes her look. She dyes her hair blonde, um, dresses very conservatively. Uh, They go to the high school reunion, and then her old boyfriend shows up, who is played by Ray Liotta, who is absolutely terrifying in this film. And at that point, the movie totally changes direction, and it becomes sort of a psycho-thriller chase movie. Yeah. Uh, where Ray Liotta, it turns out that she's still married to Ray Liotta, that they were married in the past. He went to prison. She doesn't know he's out of prison. Uh, Jeff Daniels is totally befuddled. They start battling for the hand of Melanie Griffith. It starts a cross-country road chase. And it gets really crazy because Ray Liotta is really frightening uh, in this film, and he's clearly intent on murdering both of them at this point, at which point you're wondering, what happened to the romantic comedy that I was enjoying? <laughs> where are we? I was kind of glad that it went away. What? 
uh, the the romantic comedy yeah. part that is. I'm just saying that. I gotcha. mean, I, I was glad that it wasn't just this cliche. Like right. You had enough. Like let's. Move yeah. The story yeah. Through. I was glad mm-hmm. that it went someplace else besides where I expected it to. Yes. Well, I don't uh, even remember that part as it, watching it as a kid now. I don't. I must have blocked out the bad part. You remember the romantic comedy yes, part? Yes. I don't remember. The yes. Part. Yeah. Uh, well, it's scary. It's scary. It's very violent. It's part of a subgenre in the mid '80s that I like to call the yuppie nightmares genre, uh, of which I think Blue Velvet is uh, a key player, and After Hours, the Scorsese film, where you have sort of an uptight yuppie male being drawn into a dark underworld by a mysterious woman, mm-hmm. uh, and their life is turned upside down. This is the only one that actually plays with tone in a way that I. I've, you very rarely see movies do this. And people that I know who have seen something wild often say, I liked it up until that point, or I only liked it after that point. It's not both usually. Yeah. For me, it's like two great tastes that taste great together. It's like a Reese's peanut butter cup. But for <laughs> yeah, a lot of people, yeah. it's like, I only like peanut butter or I only like chocolate. Who are you? What? Who are those people? <laughs> yeah. It's me. I really <laughs> it's yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I've never really seen a film that's so to me expertly handled the transition and that both worked and he does it both visually and thematically and story-wise and with music yeah so it all works together the first part of the film is very bright and poppy there's a lot of primary colors a lot of fun upbeat world music uh, there's a lot of fine young cannibals and ub40 music a lot of reggae music jimmy cliff uh, and then at the second part of the film, when it gets very dark, the music turns to 80s punk. There's a lot of X music and guitar rock. The palette of the cinematography becomes very dark and shadowy. Yeah. The clothing changes. Lulu is no longer wearing these crazy outfits. She's wearing sweatpants and no makeup. And Punk is it. I mean, right? It really becomes something mm-hmm. of a punk movie. It does. At that point. There's yes. so much of it. I mean, it's living outside the mainstream. The second half of that movie, for sure. And the transition is that the Feelies are the band at the reunion. So if you're familiar with the Feelies, they were a very uh, influential independent punk band in the 80s. Yeah. And very strange that that they would be playing a reunion in this small town. But they're doing it. Yeah, unheard of in reality. Unheard of in reality. But it's at the reunion where the tone shifts. And they, they actually start playing dark punk music as that shift happens. Uh, so to me, that's just a sign that Demi is a very, very careful filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the film, when things are almost set right, although not quite, uh, the palette, the colorful palette returns. And we have the film ending with this great reggae singer named Sister Carol singing Wild Thing, the Trog song in reggae style on the streets of New York under the closing credits. Mm-hmm. It's so cool. It's a great way to end a film. And really shows Demi's love of music yeah. and musicians, oh, yeah. and particularly a diversity of music. So there's a lot of white musicians, black musicians, music from all over the world in this film. Mm-hmm. Which for that time was fairly unheard of. Uh, yes. World music wasn't a big genre in the mid-80s. No, no. But Demi was always a big proponent of that. I think that's mm-hmm. his relationship with David Byrne yeah. from Stop Making Sense. David Byrne provides the title song from Something Wild. Uh, sung by Celia Cruz. So you get this great blending. It's called Loco de Amor. So it's sung in Spanish by Celia Cruz, a Cuban singer, composed by David Byrne. Uh, And Patti Smith um, is on the soundtrack. But Laurie Anderson provides the score. 
and John Cale from Velvet Underground. So there's a lot of hipster music in it. Uh, so it seemed like, a, to me, a very cool movie when I saw it, like a very cool hipster oh, yeah. film. Still, it holds up that way very much. Yes. I, that's a great soundtrack. Yes. I, I own it and listen to it frequently. Yeah. That's cool. Um, but I think this is what Jonathan Demme did really well. Like He made these really humanistic, sort of generous comedies that sort of like, he likes the people these films are about. And the Ray Liotta character, who's awful and terrifying in the film, Jonathan Demme has said what he learned from Roger Corman was when you're casting a villainous character, you always have to make them likable. Because if an audience doesn't like the characters, even the villain, they're not going to like the film. Yeah. So the the villain has to believe that he or she is likable and play it that way. That's interesting. Nobody thinks they're a villain in their story, right? right? Nobody thinks no. I'm the villain. Not in usually. This. Not usually. Every once in a while, we might... Yeah. There might be some prominent people now who had the, right, that. Exactly. But. Yeah, yeah. But I thought that was interesting that he was using techniques learned in the Roger Corman School of Exploitation Filmmaking in these big studio films because those are good good things to put in films. Yeah, well, and the Jeff Daniels character really does like the Ray Liotta character at first. He like he's, he's thinking, yes. I found myself a drinking buddy. Yeah. <laughs> we're we're going to go and a little does he know that yeah. bad stuff is, is Whoops, on its way. Whoops, he's the devil. I, I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. Oops. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it's it's a really great film, but again, a film that takes a real hard right turn. So if you're someone who needs to know where a film's going at every moment, this is not the film for you. Mm. Yeah. There are a few films that I think take such a change in tone halfway through. I, mm. I, I struggle to come up with one that's just so, so different. Well, it's risky yeah. storytelling. It is. That you have to trust that either your f- audience is going to just go along for the ride or they're not going to abandon you, you know what right. I mean? And that's, you know, not all directors are going to do that. Right. And he has often lamented. He said this is one of his favorite movies that he made. But he feels like Orion Pictures, who distributed the film, and himself, even, he said that we just didn't know how to market this film. Yeah. Because it was too strange. Right. It was too strange. And it, it didn't do very well. I think people have found it later on home video and um, yeah. a little bit of a cult film. When, dear listener, you should as well. It's way worth checking out. I had never seen it oh. before well, preparing it for this. I loved it. I absolutely loved yes. it. And Melanie Griffith at her finest. I think yeah, she had a great run peaks. in the 80s with Body Double and Working Girl and Something Wild. and. Yeah. Um, come back, Melanie. Come back. Yeah. No, it's I, I'm not the biggest Melanie Griffith fan, but she's really great in this. She's perfectly cast. Yes. She that, really yeah, is. She needs to find another role like this or Working Girl to kind of come back. I think. It's the helium voice, which is tough. Yeah. Like, it is. To cast that voice. It has to be the exact right role. Yeah. Yeah. No, this really works because, you know, she's putting on airs. From the beginning, pretty much. Yes. And so the voice kind of adds to that, just not quite trustworthy, I guess. Right. And it's a movie where everyone's pretending to be something that they're not. Yeah. So there's a lot of doppelgangers and doubling and identity switching. And uh, yeah, just really great. So because of the use of music in this film and all of his films, I thought maybe we'd talk a little bit about his music documentaries. And I know you're a big fan of Stop Making Sense, Rusty. Yeah, yeah, I... I don't know when I found Stop Making Sense. Um, I didn't see it at the theater. You know, I I was in New York, I guess, um, seeing a documentary, and 
they were re-releasing Stop Making Sense, and it, they, I saw the preview for it, and I was I was kind of blown away, and so I went and hunted it down, I guess. Um, that would have been in 99 or so. Um, but since then, I've watched it over 100 times, I'm sure. Oh, wow. um, it's, it's an easy go-to for me because it's great background, or it's great mm. if I'm going to pay a lot of attention to it. Um, there's a ton of really great stuff. To me, it's it's the best concert film made. I, I don't think there's a better one. I would agree. I, yeah. I enjoy it more than any other one I've ever seen, for sure. Um, I love the Talking Heads, so that certainly helps. But I don't think you have to be a Talking Heads fan to find this an engrossing, no. engrossing film. It starts out so slowly uh, with David Byrne just coming out on stage. David Byrne, the lead singer of the Talking Heads. He comes out on stage with a boombox and hits play, and it's him and his guitar in the boombox doing Psycho Killer um, in a really stripped-down stage. And as he's playing, stagehands start moving things out onto the stage, and it, it begins a progression that probably goes about six songs before all of the artists have come out on stage and and before all of the stagehands have moved everything out onto the stage, too, and, and fully decorated the everything. It, it's really kind of a really great build to to this brilliant music played by Talking Heads and I, I love Jonathan Demi's approach to it. I've I've listened to him talk about it now a few times. And one thing that's very obvious if you watch it for the first time is you never see the crowd. It's filmed over two or three days um from live concerts, mm-hmm. but you never see the crowd. And Jonathan Demi said he was in the crowd and realized because of the lighting that David Byrne and the band was using, that it would make a great film. At one point, David uh, Byrne is singing into a lamp, Mm -hmm. um, and he's got light going on. He comes out in a great big suit because he wanted to make his head look little. Yeah. Um, And so he comes out in this Mm. huge suit, which works. It makes his head tiny. And when he comes out to it, you can see him shaking his shoulders back and forth in the suit, but it's all a silhouette. Yeah. Um, in the in the film when you first see it and it's cast onto this backdrop and it's it's really brilliant. The that suit was such a brilliant idea because that is the iconic image of that film. Oh yeah, yes, everyone knows the big suit even if you haven't seen the film. Yeah, that was That's really true. smart. It's a yeah. big deal. It's yeah. a big deal. And that was all David Byrne before it ever became a movie. Mm. He was doing that on stage before it became a theatrical. Piece, but that's, I mean, it was a theatrical piece. David Byrne's conception of it mm. is obviously very theatrical. There's the slow build um, that builds the tension as the band's coming on stage, as pieces are, of the set are coming on. Um, and then it, it blows up with him coming out in the big suit then at that point. And mm. it's really neat because you never see the audience, even though it's filmed in in a concert, and uh, Jonathan Demi said that they tried originally. He's like, originally I was going to light the audience, but as soon as I did that, it messed up all the lighting on the stage and how the lighting worked on stage, so I didn't do it. And so that's why he's like, that's how I developed that style was because it just didn't work. Um, And so you don't get the fake B-roll of people dancing to... I hate that in concert documentaries when you see people dancing and it's, I want to watch the band. I don't want to watch these people having fun. I want to have fun. Well, and that's something that you said uh, when we were talking about it, Jeff, is that you've shown it at the loft and you're going to do it again on July 3rd. 
yes. you're going to th- show Stop Making Sense, which I'm very excited about. We're going to do an outdoor screening, so there'll be plenty of room to dance. Because when you showed it before, people wanted to get up and dance. People just stood up in the in the aisles and danced, you know. That's so cool. Yeah, it was like a real concert. Yeah. yeah. Well, when you watch it, it is. Yeah. I mean, it's a concert. And, and that's the thing that I think Jonathan Demme, I've, I've watched a bunch of his concert videos. He he catches a moment in time, a cultural moment that's talking heads when when he films that concert video and afterwards, I mean, he catches that moment so brilliantly of this super genius David Byrne, mm. who's not just a musician, but realizes he can use lighting and props and, and just and the band around him too to help tell a much bigger story. And and mm. it it really, to me, is a cultural moment that, that Jonathan Demme's caught. And he does that over and over. Um, Heart of Gold is the Neil Young film mm-hmm. that I really love. It's not done in front of a live audience. They filmed that twice so that they could do these really elaborate set designs. I love Neil Young, and it's it's after his, uh, his album Prairie Wind, mm-hmm. um, which I, I really love that album as well. It's really a personal album for Neil Young. Uh, he's singing about his dad who's got Alzheimer's or who's de- dealt with Alzheimer's and, and then dealing with that person. And um, and he talks about his daughter going off to college. And so it's a really personal album that then Jonathan Demme films the concert of. Mm. And one of the things that typifies all these Jonathan Demme pieces is you get the sense that you know more about all the band members than just the lead singer, too. I, I feel like I get backstory as I'm watching almost. Yes. Even though he's not telling you anything necessarily. Sometimes you do see behind-the-scenes stuff, um, particularly Justin Timberlake and the Tennessee Kids. Um, you get some backstory behind-the-scenes right. stuff there. Right. right. But generally, it's just done through what's happening on the stage. But he really does do great character development with with the band members. Um, which I think is really neat. I don't think everybody can do that. And then yeah. it's gorgeous because he's not worried about the crowd because he's he's really paying attention to the set and because he's really paying attention to the actors on the stage. The shots just really linger and they're much longer mm-hmm. than than a typical concert footage. It's it's not like the quote unquote MTV style that's jumping back and forth between right, shots. Right. He'll linger and let the camera not even show you the main thing that's happening on stage, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how you start developing these these people as characters um, because it's more than just telling the story of the most important thing on this stage. He's showing you the entire the entire group. And I, I think that that's really cool. And it's it's done to great effect in the Justin Timberlake Netflix yes. um, concert video, Justin Timberlake and the Tennessee Kids. I don't I don't love the music. I would go see a Justin Timberlake show though anytime. But again, I think he's caught this cultural moment yep. of Justin Timberlake as this bigger than life huge entertainer. Huge Puts entertainer. On a great show. But yes. still you see the person mm-hmm. in this concert so much. Mm-hmm. You see even though he's done this I don't know how many times Justin Timberlake's done that concert and done mm-hmm. these songs, there are so many little idiosyncrasies in his mannerisms that you catch that it it feels so personal and it feels like he's doing it almost for the first time, even though clearly with all those dance moves, it's very choreographed. Yes. But it doesn't feel that way. It doesn't feel stale at all. Yeah. And this is the last day of the of the tour for Justin Timberlake. Mm. It's in Vegas. And in, in this case, they had, I think, 34 cameras 
that they were using for mm. this movie, which is right. kind of amazing. And so, yeah. and you never get that sense. You never get the sense. I, I actually, I, I take that back. It was done over two days. Mm. Um, but you never get the sense that there are a gazillion cameras because he lets things linger so long. There's not quick editing. Um, and there's so much happening on stage that it's just a, a wonder to look at. And some of the, yeah. the, the effects that are going on and the light show for Justin Timberlake, I just really love it. Well, I think what particularly stopped making sense is that you can tell that he likes the band and he respects the band and actually enjoys watching them perform. Yes. There's a lot of music docs where you get the sense the director doesn't care who this band is. It's a job. They're going to film it. They're going to cut it up with editing. Go through the motions and get a check. Exactly. Exactly. But he clearly wants to tell their story and to let them tell their story, which I think is very yeah. Jonathan Demi. Like, he likes his subjects in right. all and of his films. we talked about earlier that he doesn't get in the way of them. Like, he kind of, yeah. I mean, of course he directs them, but he doesn't, he lets them do their thing for the most part and mm-hmm. find their place in the story. That's tough to let your ego go in that industry. I think a lot of yeah. filmmakers have a hard time letting the subjects take over oh, yeah. and not mm-hmm. putting their stamp on it as a director. Mm-hmm. But I think that's that's his style. Yeah. Yeah. If he's an auteur, that's what that's what his style Agreed. is, I think. Yeah, for sure. Is to trust his talent in front of him. Yeah. Yeah. And that's careful selecting of actors and bands and subjects. So that's part of the whole process, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and again, I think as we've talked before too, I think I think that's part of the Roger Corman influence. I've seen Roger Corman mm-hmm. speak um Probably if you're interested in film, you have too. Yeah. <laughs> because he goes around quite a bit all oh, over yes. the country yep. and has over the years. And he just seems like the nicest man. Mm-hmm. And he seems like he really cares about about his art and about about the business and the people in the business. He really reaches out to folks all the time. And I think I think Jonathan Demi, at least in part, having worked under Roger Corman for a few years, I think at least in part picked up on that and learned that from him. Right. I think we've all we talked about this off mic that that I don't think I've heard anyone ever say anything bad about Jonathan Demme. No, everyone has everyone loved, good to say loved him. about their experience. Even yes. if they didn't work under him as an actor, they, you know, uh, Barry Jenkins talked about meeting Jonathan Demme briefly a few times and how he was such a, a champion of Moonlight and getting Moonlight done mm-hmm. and how he was like, he felt like he was in his corner, but they barely worked together. You know what right. I mean? So he was just supportive of the art of filmmaking and he wanted you to feel like you were part of the team. It seemed like when they were, when people were writing their stories about him after he passed, it just seemed like he's a director you want to work with because he makes you feel like you're part of the team. You're part of the whole family of that set. And I think that must've been pretty cool. And he's a true film lover. He right up until he died, he was, uh, he was on the board of the Jacob Burns film center in New York. And he, curated and hosted a monthly series called Films You Don't Know About, something like that. Oh, that's cool. And he would just bring films that he loved and he would get on stage and talk about these films. And to me, like, that's clearly someone who loves what they're doing. And loves filmmaking and Mm -hmm. films, period. And you may, I mean, I'm sure there's definitely directors who are like that, but it feels like he was more... Uh, vocal about it and more supportive of other filmmakers right. and actors and it wasn't about me, me, me mm-hmm. this is my vision and I think that after he passed it was at least nice to hear that he had such a great effect on people so. Yeah. sometimes nice guys finish first Yes, which he yeah. did 
at the Oscars in 1991 yes. when he won the Academy Award for Best Director for Silence of the Lambs. Yes. Uh, which is an incredible, incredible film. Amazing film, 1991, yeah. Uh, Jodie Foster plays mm-hmm. Clarice Starling, and Anthony Hopkins <laughs> plays Hannibal Lecter. Scott Glenn plays li- one of the FBI guys. Um, and, ver- and oh, I should have looked up his name, but the guy who plays Buffalo, Buffalo Bill. Bill. He's done many a sitcom now, yeah. but I can't remember his name. But Ted something. Yes. He's great. And I think most people don't even connect him at, with the Buffalo Bill character. Um, but anyways, side point. Um, I think Silence of Lambs is one of Jonathan Demme's most solid films he's ever made. Mm. And not just because he won an Oscar, because I don't always think that's the tip top, but... I mean, I watched it as a teenager, and then I watched. I've watched it repeatedly. I've seen Silence of the Lambs at least twenty times, which might be might sound weird, Heather. <laughs> but it's such a solid movie. Does it like, put the lotion on its skin, Heather? <laughs> put your lotion. Should we in be the worried? Basket. Okay. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's such a solid movie from beginning to end, mm. where you see Clarice running. She's working hard. I appreciate it for one thing that it's, and it wasn't. It wasn't as clear to me as it was when I now but it's about a woman trying to save another woman and it it didn't like honestly sadly enough when I first saw it that didn't pop out at me but as I got older and I watched it more and I read more articles about it and realized oh yeah it is it's totally because I think Hannibal Lecter kind of overshadows it but it really is a story about a woman trying to save a woman and a woman Jodie Foster's character trying to struggle in a job in a world that she's surrounded by men who are just towering over her, literally in some of the shots. It's, mm. it's great. Um, such visuals in this movie. And um, you see her just trying to be a trainee and do her job and not mess up this this thing to go meet Hannibal Lecter. And, and you know, the first time you see Hannibal Lecter, you're thinking, what is he going to do? Like, how are you? How is he going to show him? And you see him. He's standing in the middle of his cell. Like, mm. he has no power. But he's going to impose as much power as he can. He's literally standing in the middle of the cell at attention, staring at her, smiling Mm. as she comes around the corner. And that was so intimidating. And so he's telling the story of Clarice trying to save this young girl, at least help them save this young girl. And then you get the side notes of who is Hannibal Lecter. And you get their tension between Hannibal and Clarice and their little back and forth and the cuts between them. Like, how do you when you think about shooting a scene of a guy in a plexiglass cell versus Clarice, how are you going to shoot that? Like, cause that could have been shot really boring, oh, yeah. but they choose to like go from the wide shots to medium shots to close-ups to establish the tension. And you don't really notice it unless you're really looking for it, but that's how he does it. I mean, it could have been the most boring scene, even mm. though Anthony Hopkins is great. It could have been so boring, but they edited it and shot it so well that they created this tension. And, I like that part. I like that there's a mystery. Even though you find out who Buffalo Bill is, they're still seeing her trying to figure that part out. And I find that compelling um, because she's fighting against the male-dominated, you know, FBI. Mm -hmm. And um, the scene where, you know, uh, Crawford basically dismisses her when they're going to go do the autopsy on one of the victims. And later on, she says to him, you can't treat me that way in front of men, not blatantly, but, but but what basically is said is you can't do that because it matters because other men see you treat me that way. And I think that's such a great part yeah. of this movie that people don't see is that part is that like she's making a point, you know, 
as you may or may not want to call it feminist or whatever, but it's a point. Like it matters when you treat people that way in front of other treat other people. And the casting of Jodie Foster right. is so important for that because mm-hmm. you would buy Jodie Foster saying that. Yes. Yeah. And it's so it's she's so great in this role. And the other technique that Demi does is he does this close up for close up. Like so, you know, oftentimes you're gonna cut to a medium shot to a close up, back out to a wide shot, something like that. And he's like close up, close up, close up, close up, close up, and it's and it creates this tension that you didn't know was there. Like, he's not doing it. Like you don't see the plexiglass anymore because now you're just seeing their close ups of mm-hmm. Lecter and her. So it's just so well edited and shot. Um, and it, you know, the storytelling, the line of you're seeing. Um, speaking of music in his mm-hmm. movies. The scene where um, the last victim is uh, confronted by um, Buffalo Bill is, and he, she's playing American Girl by Tom Petty and yes. the Heartbreakers. I cannot listen to that song without thinking of that scene at all anymore. Mm-hmm. I always think of that scene, and she's so happy. And and I also have think of that scene because I think of no, never ever help a dude that has a broken arm, especially <laughs> put a sofa in the back of his van and go first into the van. Lessons learned from Silence Safety of the Lambs. First. Yes. But mm-hmm. like American Girl, I mean, it's only one of two or three songs that are like uh, mainstream music. There's that other like weird... Uh, electronic song kind of when Buffalo Bill's dancing, dancing around. yes. But those are two important parts mm-hmm. that I think show his use of music in the movie. Mm-hmm. And I just think to have such a strong role in 91 was amazing, um, you know, to have presented her that way. And she's, I mean, she's a short, diminutive person, but her acting is never that. And... I believe her every step of the way. And you have so many of close-ups of her face. I didn't really dawn, it didn't dawn on me till I was watching it the other day that you see her blue eyes and her pink lips and her dark brownish red hair mm. so much. And you think of her, it's just so striking because she emotes so much. Right. That to have an actor, to trust an actor that much, I don't think you would have gotten that of many other actors. No. You know. And it was always promoted as a horror film, which right. it is horrific, but right. I always, I never really thought of it as a horror film. I right. always thought of it as a character study of this woman. Absolutely. Right. More yeah, than a horror film. Yeah, and I mostly thought of it as like a thriller mystery kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I mean, how amazing is it that, you know, I feel like, if, okay, spoiler really quick. We are, <laughs> I mean, she's the one that saves the day, you know, in the end. And that's just not something a lot of, even today, a lot of female roles don't no. get that. And Anthony Hopkins doesn't have that much screen time. No, Someone did a breakdown of how much he's actually on screen. Right. And he won the Best Actor Oscar. Right. But he's not very, relatively very little screen time yeah. for him. But he makes such an impact that you feel like he's owning right. the movie, but it's really her movie. Right. When it wouldn't, he wouldn't have been so great if she wasn't there right. to work off of him. I really think so. And I don't know. It's one of, I think, Jodie Foster's best characters and one of Jonathan Demme's best movies. And I feel like the other thing that should be mentioned is <laughs> Buffalo Bill's character is so dicey. Um, From a 2017 perspective, it's right. very dicey. It's yes. dicey. So a lot of, you know, this movie comes up on, you know, top transphobic movies, you know? And I think that there's something to think about. You know, it's not in the movie when they're trying to find who Buffalo Bell is and they come across, you know, let's look for men who are looking for sex changes 
who was denied sex changes, mm. that kind of thing. And they go, they try to go out of their way to say like he's really not a transsexual. He's just not comfortable in his body, and this is how he's showing that feeling, and that he wouldn't qualify for the surgery. So I think that's kind of their band aid for that. Mm. But they are still putting a transsexual person idea of what is transsexual is in a really poor light uh, in terms of you know being a serial killer and hey I'm so weird that I'm gonna I want to be a woman so badly that I want to I'm gonna take her skin and be a woman right and so that is like a very transphobic theme you can't get around it Mm -hmm. at all but from a perspective now it's messed up and they didn't have to have the scene of him dancing, because, but it's like the tucking of the penis the tuck scene. and yes. the dancing in the robe, mm-hmm. the song. It's been, become iconic. It's been repeated in other movies and like made fun of. So they could have gotten away without that. I think Buffalo Bill was just as creepy without that. So I, that's my really only criticism of that is yeah. and they this didn't was, necessarily need that. This was around the same time as The Crying Game. Right. I mean, there was, there was a certain movement in in film at that time that yeah. was touching early on, touching on the transgender issue right. and maybe didn't handle it right. in the best possible way, but right. it was very, very early. Right. And it, it doesn't ruin the movie for me mm. at all. I think the movie is so great and shot so well and acted so well that, and there are other things that are positives like the women, the woman role and, and all of that, that I think it doesn't ruin it. It's still worth a watch for sure. Mm. And just with the context that, you know, that's, not how we really want to be representing the trans population now. And that that was something that, you know, through time, we definitely hope people won't do anymore. They're still doing it. I mean, people are still making those mistakes nowadays, which is why I wanted to mention it. It's a teachable moment. It's a teachable moment. And it doesn't ruin the film. It's such a great... I mean, even just as Buffalo Bill, he's a creepy-ass dude. And there's no way around it. Right. He's creepy with or without the trans issue, honestly. Um, and, ha- you know, I like, you know, I can be armchair director all that I want and hope, mm-hmm. wish that he hadn't had that in there, but he does. But it, I, like I said, I've seen this movie many times. I enjoy the storytelling, um, the parallel storytelling of what Buffalo Bill's doing versus what Clarice is doing. And yeah. it's such a great demonstration of of her acting. And, and, and it is horror. I mean, I forgot, like, how stunning the first time it was when you see the end part of when Hannibal Lecter escapes. Like, I really forgot how stunning that was the first time I saw it. And I watch it now and thinking, holy crap, this did really freak me out. <laughs> and, you yeah. know, the yeah. idea of him being able to escape like that and the way it was presented. I mean, they did say that he had taken that scene of, of the courtroom that has the cell in the middle and the bodies hanging and the drapes. He said he, he modeled that after some Francis Bacon paintings of mm-hmm. wartime and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And, it is that disturbing. So it is definitely horror, so I don't want to downplay that. There is some horrible things, so don't forget that if you're sensitive no. to those things. But And Demi's great at creating suspense. The yes. whole final sequence where she's in the house and it's yes. totally dark and he's stalking yes. her in the house is really terrifying, right. and that's a testament to his skill. Well, and she's directing. acting. I mean, I don't know. I, I haven't read to see it. I assume she was acting in the dark as well mm-hmm. because you see the terror on her face. Yeah. And you feel the terror and you're like, holy crap, you know, it's. And when the girl's in the hole and saying, don't leave me, which I would say the same thing. Yeah. But it is a great. I mean, it's so suspenseful. It's worth watching for sure. And just just to kind of think about 
looking at things in historical perspective, much like it's the trans issues in Science of the Lambs, you have to look at it as a 1991 film. I think we should also just mention Philadelphia, his 1993 yes, film. Yes, sure. uh, Academy Award winning, winning performance by Tom Hanks as a lawyer with AIDS who is... Um, it's It was a very progressive at the time, and we can look at it now as being maybe a safe presentation of the AIDS issue. But if you think about the fact that that was a huge mainstream film, Tom Hanks got to win the Oscar and give this really great impassioned Oscar okay. speech, which really brought attention to the issue. And it showed a lot of people a gay character who may never, ever have gone to see mm-hmm. a quote-unquote gay film yeah. had it not been Tom Hanks. Yeah who was America's male sweetheart at the time, and still is. And I forgot till we were talking about it that, and it showed Denzel Washington, a character who was not all very up on the gay issues at all. That is correct. Didn't want to take this case. Yeah. And that's really what represented, I would say, mainstream America at the time. Middle America, yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Like my parents who, yeah, would never talk about homosexuality. Yeah. Yeah, and it put AIDS in a very light, of two men, I mean, it wasn't the main part of the story, but having being a part of a couple, Antonio Banderas's character and them being a couple is also something you would never see at that time. Right, they were a committed couple, right. and Tom Hanks was a prof- had a professional right. job. They, right. it, it wasn't about the gay bar scene, right. so I think it was more palatable for right. Middle America. Maybe. Yeah, but it was still like I still was amazed that they were having this man talk about how much he loved his partner. Uh, that's yeah. huge for people. It was and, huge. And yes. I think that as time has progressed and how people have unfortunately gotten this idea that AIDS and HIV is not important anymore, that Philadelphia doesn't get the props that it should for the groundbreaking movie that it was and for the fact that people were like, oh, this movie was nominated for an Oscar. I really should go see it. And would who, who would never go see it before, who maybe right. go to church on Sunday or don't know anyone gay at the time. Right. Went to go see Philadelphia because it had Tom Hanks, who was an accessible actor, mm-hmm. and uh, an upcoming Denzel Washington. You know, so I think he made something that was so important at the time, not just as a cultural and health issue, but political issue, uh, out in the world. Yeah, you know? and I've likened this. I said this off off mic, but I feel like that movie was the equivalent of parachute dropping gay people into the Midwest. Yes, because. It got people to go to a movie theater and see a story about gay men and AIDS and really, I think, opened a lot of people's eyes. I think so, too. Absolutely, it did. Absolutely, it did. I remember watching it in 1993 with my parents, and it was something that we wouldn't have talked about. Even though I I had family members who were gay, it was not something that was openly discussed. Mm -hmm. Um, And so for for my parents and people like my parents in the Midwest— to go see this, it really started changing things in, in much bigger ways. Yeah. And that, and that, I think, speaks to Jonathan Demme's sort of love of humanity. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mean, you can see why he would be attracted to doing a movie like yeah. that. Yeah. And putting uncomfortable ideas into comfortable places, I guess. That's a right. weird way to put it. But, <laughs> yes. like, yeah. honestly, having Tom Hanks in anything puts it accessible to anybody. Exactly. Almost. So, exactly. I mean, and nowadays, of course, many people would say it's, you know, schlocky and not uh, as true to what it is. But right. I think For the time, it was groundbreaking, yeah. to say yeah. the least. Historical context. I mean, yeah. amazing. I mean, I need to rewatch it. I haven't watched it in years, but 
I feel I it made such a huge impact on me mm. seeing the effects of two men in love and it was it was huge for me. And you were probably crying the first time you saw it. Oh so. my god, yeah. I was bawling like a baby. And then <laughs> when Tom again. Hanks gave his acceptance speech, I was bawling like a baby. It was horrible. That was amazing. That song yes. Streets of Philadelphia holds up so well. Mm-hmm. It's really aged very well that song. Yes. I love mm-hmm. it. I love it. Bruce Springsteen singing Streets yeah. of Philadelphia is just beautiful. And another musical example yeah yes yeah. exactly yeah uh yeah so there's many many great jonathan demi movies for us to watch some that we want to revisit some we haven't seen i recommend the Man- manchurian candidate from 2004 is it yeah the remake the remake also I, with denzel yeah also with denzel washington mm-hmm. it's really good it's updated in a really clever way it's really mm-hmm. smart it moves i love the original john frankenheimer film mm-hmm. um i i think it's one of the great american films this is a, if you were going to redo it, Jonathan Demme's version is really strong. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Solid. And of course, Melvin and Howard is pretty great. And Married to the Mob is great. It's fun. It's still fun to watch. It's, yeah. And it's got Joan Cusack. I'm always going to give a shout out to Joan Cusack Yay, if I can. Joan. Yay, She's if you can. Yeah. <laughs> also, uh, Storefront Hitchcock is a really oh, interesting uh, music documentary mm-hmm. about Robin Hitchcock and mm-hmm. his performance. In a in a store in New York City, mm-hmm. in a closed down store, it's it's really cool, and it's another one where uh, Hitchcock's lyrics are so cryptic and weird sometimes, yeah. and funny that it's really cool. And then there's there's kind of drama. It's things are changing on the set as the movie goes along. I I really enjoyed watching that for the first time. Yeah, it's podcast. really interesting. Yeah, it really is. If you're a Robin Hitchcock fan, it's definitely worth watching. If you've never heard of him, I I recommend finding it. Hunt yeah. it down. Yeah, and see Swimming to Cambodia if you've never seen yes, that. Yes, please. The Spalding do. Gray, because that, much like uh, Stop Making Sense, I think is the best concert doc. This is the best monologue doc. Mm-hmm. And you can't quite understand how can you make a film interesting about a guy sitting at a desk talking about Cambodia? Well, but in the making us. of a film. Yeah, the trust making of us. a Killing Fields. It is amazing. And it's you it's watch riveting it. and it's I great. Didn't know what I was watching at first, and then I realized, and it was amazing. You should watch it. <laughs> yes, just watch it. Just please, just watch it. Uh, yeah. So uh, Jonathan Demi will be very missed, but we yes, yeah. we always have his films. So luckily for us, they are still out there. Go get Stop Making Sense and put it on loop. Yeah, <laughs> just watch it. Come to our outdoor screening at the loft, and you can dance all over the parking lot. It's Woo-hoo! gonna be great. <laughs> uh, so thanks, Rusty and Heather. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, thank you, Jeff. And thanks, Jonathan Demi, for making so many great films. Yes. Uh, so please, um, as always, please remember to uh, check us out on Facebook and please check out our website, uh, minirulesoffilmclub.com. Uh, go to iTunes, rate us, uh, email us, let us know, message us, tell us what you think about everything we're doing. Uh, it really does help us out. Uh, the next time on the Mini Rules of Film Club, we are going to be delving into rule number 1,814 of the Mini Rules of Film Club, which is when you want more, there's always more, Julianne Moore. So we're going to look at the cinema of Julianne Moore because Yay. she is, I think it's safe to say, one of our greatest American Woo-hoo! actresses. Yes. Yes. So we're very excited. We love, we love Julianne Moore. So we're going to talk all about Julianne Moore. Uh, Thank you for listening to the Mini Rules of Film Club, and we'll see you next time. 